Well, good evening and welcome back to our pastor's class. We're glad to have you join us. After we took a two-week break, uh, two weeks ago we took Wednesday off uh, in view of our Vacation Bible School and we praise the Lord for all the work our children's ministries put into that ministry event two weeks ago. And then of course last Wednesday it was our holiday week. We took the week off but we're back at it and this evening we're going to wrap up at last the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in the last handful of verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. And after we conclude this book tonight, we're going to start next week with, well, as you might expect, 2 Thessalonians. So I hope you stick with us as we continue through this study of these two letters the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Now, tonight, before I read our text, before I read verses 23 through 28 to wrap up the letter, uh, it's important you know a little bit of context. It's going to help you understand the import of these handful of verses. Paul ends this letter after having given a list of commands. Basically, from verses 12 all the way to verse 22 in chapter 5, Paul had just given all these admonitions, all these exhortations, all these commands on what it ought to look like to be a believer in a local church. Now, I want you to notice with me, after all these commands, as we begin verse 23, you're going to notice a stark change in tone. He shifts here, and it's important to pick up on that shift. It's going to illuminate for us why Paul ends this letter the way he does. And so if you have a Bible, I hope you uh, have it with you tonight. Open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to read beginning in verse 23. Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So ends Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and that you would minister to your people in and through me, indeed in spite of me, for the sake of their faith. Lord, I pray that you would build up brothers and sisters joining tonight. And would you apply your word as your Holy Spirit would deem. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Have you ever noticed that at the end of the service here at Hickory Grove, we often proclaim, we'll even use this word, we'll say we're concluding our service with what's called a, a benediction. You've heard that word, benediction, I trust a number of times. Uh, the tricky thing with a word like benediction, though, is it's not something you ordinarily use in common language. It's probably not altogether abundantly clear to you what exactly a benediction is. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul did at the end of this letter. He granted a, he, he bestowed a benediction at the end. What do you mean when we say benediction? What does Hickory Grove mean when we conclude a service with a benediction? Is it just some sort of archaic, formal uh, mode? Is it some sort of bizarre word that doesn't have a whole lot of import for us today? You ought to know what a benediction is. Benediction, it's a Latin word, and it comes from the Latin bene, which means good, and dicere, which means speak or talk or say. So you put good 
and speak and put it together and a benediction is pronouncing a good word or a good speech to somebody. So let's just put it in common language. A benediction is a word of blessing to God's people. It is speaking a word over them. Now I want you to notice a, a distinction. You may naturally want to associate the word benediction uh, with another theological word like doxology because doxologies often end letters and it's just overwhelming praise to God or even something as simple as prayer. What do you, what's the difference between a benediction and then like a, a doxology or a prayer? Well, doxology is us praising God. Prayer is us speaking to God. Whereas a benediction goes a different direction. Wherein we praise the Lord, we speak to the Lord in prayer and doxology. In a benediction, it goes the other way. It is God pronouncing a blessing, a good word to us. And so why does Paul do this? Why does Paul end his letter with a pronouncement of God's blessing or benediction, his good word, to us? Why is the Bible filled with benedictions? I mean, just look in the Old Testament with me and you'll notice from Genesis all the way to Zechariah near the end of the Old Testament, almost every one of the books of the Old Testament demonstrates for us a benediction. There's really only a handful that don't. You go to the New Testament and literally every book of the New Testament uh, portrays for us some kind of benediction. And by my count, the only books I couldn't find one in are the book of Mark, uh, the book of James, and then the three letters of John. But I, I didn't look that closely, so they may even be there. The point being, the Bible is filled with all these examples of benedictions, blessings from God to man. Church history has also taken this practice up that the Apostle Paul, amongst others, demonstrated in the Bible. All throughout church history, even as early as the early church, the services would often conclude with a benediction where the minister, the pastor of the church, would come, often with hands up, and pronounce a blessing over God's people. This blessing was similar. It was in the same spirit and vein of probably the most famous benediction in all the Bible where Moses, in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, he pronounces a blessing, a word, a good word from the Lord over God's people. And that word is, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. I pray that blessing, that benediction, that verse, I sing it, and it's not a great voice, but I sing it every single night over my little girl a benediction from the Lord to God's people. That's what a benediction is, but really we ought to ask ourselves why. Why do we have benedictions? Why did Paul do this at the end? We've established that they're, they're biblical. We've established that they're, they're pretty normal. Hicker Grove isn't abnormal for having a benediction, but why? I want you to see this. This is critical as we read these verses. The reason why benedictions are necessary for us is because we need them. I want you to see this. If the gospel is true, and thanks be to God, we hold it with faith that it is, then the gospel suggests that apart from God's grace, apart from His, His intervening work in our lives, we have no ability to fulfill any of His commands. Apart from God intervening, we are utterly unable 
Our minds are prone to wander. Our hearts are cold. We need the Lord from beginning to end. And so, whenever we proclaim God's Word to God's people, whenever we sing of God's Word amongst God's people, it is right and good appropriate that at the end of that service, we go back to the Lord and say, Lord, if it weren't for you, we would be nothing. We need your blessing upon us. We need you to pronounce a benediction to us. In other words, brothers and sisters, I want you to see this with me tonight. This is the theme, I believe, of these closing verses of 1 Thessalonians 5. Benedictions, they really betray our need. Now, the word betray, I mean it, it reveals, it unveils our great need. The reason we have a benediction is because we are needy people. And Paul presents at the end of this letter, after all these commands, two great needs we have in light of all these commands to be a believer. The first need I want you to see is this. Number one, mark this down. You and I, we need the Lord. Look with me, if you will, at verse 23. I told you there's a marked shift in tone. After all these commands, Paul then says, Now, in light of all of this, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Stop. Paul has basically shifted and said, Now after I've commanded, given all these imperatives to you, now let's shift our minds and hearts back to the Lord and say, Lord, we need you to do this in us. All these acts, all these commands I've given you now, Lord, if you don't intervene, we're not going to be able to fulfill these. In other words, Lord, we desperately need you. In particular, I want you to notice three things the, Paul, the Apostle Paul shows we need the Lord to do in order for us to have any walk with Him. The first thing I want you to notice is this. We need the Lord to change us. He, you need the Lord to change you. Notice that, that word. It's somewhat archaic. When he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now that word sanctify, if you're a student of the Bible, you're surely familiar with it. It's all throughout the Bible. But again, it's not one of those words you use in normal language. Sanctify, it is in the original language, hagiadzo, and it means to separate, to set apart. And, and what that word is inferring is uh, when the Lord saves you, He literally sets you apart and starts to make you differently. He changes you from the inside out. So, so when you see the word sanctify, you can associate the more simple word change or transform or make holy. This is what God does. Now, I want you to notice with me, this could be a little confusing. Have you noticed it says, may he sanctify you completely? Now, that might kind of raise your ears and think, what is he talking about here? Because, listen, Kyler, my understanding biblically is that I'm always going to struggle with sin until the Lord brings me home. I'm never going to be perfectly holy. I'm never going to be changed completely. And that is true. You need to know there are some people that teach this. There are some, some aspects of evangelicalism, some, some stranger stripes within Protestantism that believe that you can reach full sanctification this side of heaven. And brothers and sisters, I tell you right now, I think that is patently false. Moreover, I'd love to meet the person who believes themselves to be fully sanctified. I, I just don't get it. Here's what I think Paul is saying. When Paul says, may God himself sanctify you completely, Paul is giving us the whole orbed picture of sanctification. He's showing us that sanctification is something that happened in the past. So I want you to see this. When, when God saved you, 
He changed you. There was, a, there was a day and time where you didn't love the Lord. You didn't want Him. You didn't have a taste for Him. And then it's like a thunderbolt. It clapped. It opened your eyes. You at last saw God for who He was. There was a change at the moment you were justified before Him. Justification initiated this great change, and you were sanctified in the past. You were changed. You started to have a taste for the Lord. But it is a false gospel to believe that God only changes you at conversion and that He doesn't keep changing you. There are people who think that once you're saved, it doesn't really matter if there's any evidence of change in your life going forward. It's that old fire insurance view of the gospel. Uh, I'm cha- saved, I'm good, I got baptized, I prayed a prayer, and it doesn't really matter how I live. Well, that is not biblical at all. For sanctification is not just something that happened in the past. It's also something that happens in the present. Presently, God is sanctifying you. He is progressively changing you day by day. He is making you more into the image of His Son. If you do not see evidence of change, and and by that I mean greater desires for the Lord, uh, more hatred for your sin, you're starting to see all the more a big difference between you and the Lord, all the more you are just amazed at the goodness of the gospel. If you don't see that change, there's a good chance that you were never saved to begin with because when God saves a man, He changes a man in the past and presently. But this is where I want to explain that word completely because there is not just a past and present sense to sanctification. There is also a future sense. And that future sense is best defined, not really with the word sanctification, is probably best defined with the word glorification. For there is going to come a day where God is at last going to change you completely. He is going to sanctify you utterly and completely, meaning He is going to give you a resurrected body. He's going to change you from the inside out. You will stand glorified before His Son, and that will come when the Lord calls us home. And so until that day comes, it is right and good and appropriate that we pray that God Almighty will come and He will bless His people by sanctifying them completely, meaning continuing that good work He began of changing us from the inside out. I want you to see that we need the Lord in particular. We need Him to change us. But there's another layer to this. We need the Lord not just to change us. Paul also makes clear that we need the Lord to sustain us. Because notice with me what he says next in verse 23. He then continues and says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few things that can kind of mess you up in this verse. On the one hand, there has been a historical uh, philosophical debate on what the human person is composed of. Uh, There are some people that will take Paul's language about the spirit and soul and body and say, Oh, well, God... our God must have inspired that we are three types of persons. We are a body, uh, we're a soul, and we're a spirit. The reason it's difficult to make that sort of judgment just based off this text is in other places, Paul talks about us just being a, a body and a spirit. So you just need to remember that there are some philosophical people that will have that bipartite view and some that will look at this verse and have that tripartite view, body and soul or body, soul, spirit. That, I think, is missing the point of this text. Here's what I want you to see in this text. I I don't think you need to make too much of the words body, soul, and spirit. Here's what you do need to make much of. It says, may He keep us blameless. May He keep us blameless. 
To keep us blameless means to guard us against temptation to sin, to guard us against creeping doubt, to guard us against an enemy that is waging war with our soul. In other words, Paul is saying you need the Lord not just to change you, you need Him to sustain you so that on the final day you will stand before the Lord blameless thanks to Jesus Christ. This draws my mind and heart to perhaps my favorite benediction in all the Bible. I don't have it on the screen, but I know it by heart because I pray it all the time. Jude 24 and 25 is a terrific text that I think you probably ought to commit to your own memory because it will help you abound in praise to God where it says, Now to Jesus who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's that keep word. He's protecting us from something. And then it says more. He doesn't just keep us from stumbling. He will make us stand in God's presence with great joy. This is the work of God sustaining us. We will stand on the final day before the Lord and not commend anything we did. I will not stand before Jesus and say, Lord, I fought the fight. I ran the race. I finished well, Lord. You should be impressed that I I fought to be in the Word of God. I fought to pray every day. I protected my mind and heart. The Lord will have no regard for that. On that final day, I will stand before Him and say, Lord, You saved me. You changed me. And thanks be to God, You sustained me to the end. All to Jesus. He will receive all credit on that final day. Brothers and sisters, we need the Lord. We need Him to change us. We need Him to sustain us. And lastly, I want you to notice one third layer to this need we have of the Lord. We need the Lord also to assure us, to assure you. Because notice with me, if you will, verse 24. He punctuates this with this great truth. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul is saying, listen, if you're worried whether that whether or not you're actually going to be sanctified, if you're worried whether or not you're actually going to be changed, if you're worried whether whether or not you'll ever be saved, Paul is saying, listen, this is in the final analysis. This is a gracious work of the Lord. He will assure you of your salvation for He will surely do it. The Lord is strong enough. You are not. He is faithful. If He has promised you that if you confess your sins, you turn from your sins, you place your faith in Jesus, He is faithful enough to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to change you and to sustain you to the end. And so we need the Lord. We need Him for this great sanctifying work. We need Him for this great persevering work. And we need Him for this great ground of assurance. If it weren't for the Lord, we would be without any hope. Brothers and sisters, we need a benediction. We need this great blessing from the Lord because we need the Lord. But I want to conclude our time this evening by laying one second great need we have. We don't just need the Lord. As wonderful as that is, in God's grace, He has ordained that we need not just Him, Christianity is not just a lone ranger relationship between you and He. He has graciously given us a second need, a second grace. We need the church. We need the church. And that's why I think Paul concludes the letter the way he does, because he shifts from speaking a blessing to God and he directs it back to his people, the church at Thessalonica. And in verse 25, he begins by saying, Brothers, would you pray for us? In short, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Paul is about to show at least three different things we need the church for. 
The church is critical for these three components in Christianity. The first thing is, as verse 25 says very clearly, guys, we need the church because we need it for prayer. Paul says in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. I'm not just praying to the Lord now. I'm asking that you would pray for me. You would pray on behalf of me to the Lord. So here's what I want you to see. One of the reasons we need the church is we need the church so that we can pray for one another. One of the greatest blessings you can give me as a pastor and you could give your fellow classmate here at this church is that you can pray for them. I believe with all of my mind, soul, heart, and being that prayer works, that prayer changes things, that prayer is not just mindless speaking. There is a God who hears, and when you go to Him in prayer, God moves. And so, brothers and sisters, I am pleading with you, as Paul pled to the church at Thessalonica, pray for one another. We need to be interceding for each other's marriages. We need to be interceding for each other's careers. We need to be interceding for one another's witnesses. We need to be interceding for one another's children. We must be praying for one another. But let me offer another uh, layer to prayer. Not just for one another, we also ought to be praying with one another. There is nothing more joyful assuring and honestly spiritually intimate than praying with another person. Have you ever had somebody know you're going through a dilemma and then ask if they could just sit down and intercede on your behalf to the Lord and to hear them cry out to God in prayer? Have you ever had somebody come into your life with great burdens and you go to them and say, do you mind if I pray for you? We need the church because we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come together and to pray with one another. I want to encourage you now. I know, I know the quarantine prevents a lot of us from having any sort of face-to-face -face interaction. If there's somebody on your heart, pick up the telephone after tonight's uh, lesson is over and go call them and say, I, you were on my heart. Do you mind if I pray for you? I promise you this is a wonderful gift from the Lord. We need the church for prayer. Moreover, we need the church, secondly, for encouragement. Notice the kind of strange thing he says next. Uh, verse 26, he says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not going to take this too literally. Please don't come up and try to kiss me or anybody else. But that was, of course, it was a feature of the culture of that time. And, and by the way, it is still a feature of that culture in many, uh, many Middle Eastern uh, areas. In other words, Paul is saying you need to show genuine brotherly love and affection to God's people. You need to not just treat them as if they're like in the grocery store. You don't really know them. You've seen them before. You kind of give a half-hearted wave and you keep moving. Paul is saying the reason we need the church is because we genuinely need the encouragement or the edification of other believers. You see, when God does a work in a church where it is composed of people who actually greet one another with a holy kiss, in other words, composed of people who actually come at one another with a sense of love, care, compassion, concern, what happens is it changes what at once seemed like a cold formality and changes that to a warm fellowship. The church will change dramatically from this sense of kind of standoffishness to this sense of genuine fellowship. You see, when, when you start to love your church and seek to encourage one another in your church, as Paul is pleading for the church at Thessalonica to do, 
you're going to see it'll no longer feel like this sort of superficial gathering where there's a bunch of people in the room but they don't really know each other and you'll start to feel a real true loving community within the body of Christ. We need the church. God has designed it to encourage one another, to greet one another, as it were, with a holy kiss. And let me lay one third and final aspect of our need for the church upon your hearts to conclude our time this evening. I want you to see third and finally that we need the church. We need it for growth. Because notice with me, if you will, verses 27 and 28, where Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul is basically saying, listen, you got to make sure this book gets to people. I wrote this letter not just for you individually. I wrote it for all of God's people to be built up. You, you need to read it. I think you can infer from this that Paul is saying we need the church because we need to be built up by God's word. Paul was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he wrote is different than anything you or I could ever write. This was the Word of God. And Paul says, I'm putting you under oath. you got to read this. you got to make sure the people are built up, that they sit under the Word. And so for us, let's just take a step back and recognize we need the church because we need it to grow in knowledge. It's hard to genuinely grow in your knowledge of the Word if you don't have somebody coming alongside you discipling you. If you don't have a shepherd leading you beside quiet waters. If you don't have somebody feeding your soul. One of the great benefits of the local church is you can go to a church and sit and receive wonderful, godly, life-giving knowledge. If you don't go to Hickory Grove and you're looking for a church, of course I commend our congregation to you, but if it's impractical for you to come, I want to encourage you to go to a church where the Bible is preached, where it's held up and the whole message is out of it. I trust like tonight's was, where the text is clearer after you're done. Don't go to a church where just sermons are talked about with all these personal anecdotes and that's about it. You need to grow in your knowledge of who God is as He has revealed Himself in this book. Go to a church to grow in knowledge. And lastly, we ought to go to a church to grow in grace, which is why Paul concludes his, service, uh, his, his letter, I should say, by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you notice through all Paul's letters, they begin with grace to you and conclude with grace be with you. Paul sees that grace is the great bookends of anything he has to teach. If it weren't for grace, we are nothing. We have no hope. He wants grace to be manifested to God's people when he writes. And then he concludes with this great benediction and says, May this grace not just be something you have in your head. May this grace not be something you just hear and think about momentarily. May it indeed be with you. May God manifest his grace in and through you. May you genuinely grow in this grace and therefore go and extend it to other people. In short, may you live a life that is seasoned by God's grace, taking this great gospel of grace and bringing it to those who are in your orbit. Brothers and sisters, we need a benediction. We need this great blessing of God. I, I can't do this. I can't be faithful as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, if it weren't for the grace of God. I need the Lord. I need Him to change me, to sustain me. I need, oh gosh, I need Him to assure me of my salvation. Moreover, I need you. I need the church. 
I need the church for praying for me. I need the church to pray fervently for me. And I need to pray for the church that God's called me to. I need the church for encouragement. And lastly, I, I need the church to grow. And so together, may we praise God in response for His great blessing to us, His benediction, as it were, to His people. May the Lord bless you, I pray, as we continue this study through First and Second Thessalonians. Would you join me as we pray to that end? Our Father in heaven, now I again proclaim your blessing, your benediction on these people. Father in heaven, I pray that you, the God of peace, would sanctify the saints gathered tonight completely. We long for that day when we will experience it fully, Lord. May their whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until your coming, until we see you, Lord Jesus, at last. You who do call us to do this, Lord, you're faithful. We are trusting that you alone can do it. So do it, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.